Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Well, we are progressing in our study of the book of Mark, and we are now in chapter 10, and today we begin verse 13, and we will cover all the way to verse 31. Now, in this section of Mark, you know that we have been encountering a lot of instruction coming from Jesus to his disciples. And if you can review the last few weeks in your mind, you realize that a lot of the instruction has to do with their attitudes. Attitudes of, although the word is never mentioned, we could probably summarize it well by saying an attitude of humility. An attitude of humility that the disciples will need in future ministry and in order to be rewarded in the kingdom of God. And even though last week seemed to stray from that, it really doesn't. Last week we talked about marriage and divorce. And what does that have to do with humility? Well, it has a lot to do with humility. The humility in the passage comes from accepting what Jesus has had to say on the matter, which we found were very strong words. There is no divorce, and there is no remarriage. That is not God's design. For disciples to accept that takes humility. And so that even fits in the context. Today we continue with a story, or really two stories welded together, that pursue the theme of humility further. Showing that it is humility that is essential to entering the kingdom of God. It takes a single devotion, a sort of helplessness, in order to get into God's kingdom. You know, there's a lot of misunderstanding today about what exactly it takes to get into heaven or to get into the kingdom of God. Now, by the way, when we say heaven and when we say the kingdom of God, I really mean the same thing, you understand. We're talking about obtaining eternal life. Jesus often refers to that, however, in terms of the kingdom, because kingdom is going to last longer than heaven. Do you realize that? Heaven is what we would go to if we were to die right now. But really, we're going to be spending the rest of our lives when Christ returns on the earth in the little, literal millennial kingdom and then in the eternal state, which could also be classified as the kingdom because Christ will be ruling and reigning there. So when we talk about getting into heaven or into the kingdom, we're talking about the same thing, salvation, obtaining eternal life. But Christ's focus on the kingdom shows that it's going to be, in many ways, much as we experience today, there will be certain rules of operation. We will not be floating around on clouds, free spirits. There will be duties, there will be responsibilities, there will be rewards in God's kingdom economy. So he often speaks about the kingdom. There are certain attitudes that we can learn on this side of the kingdom, which will help us in the kingdom itself. But the main thing we're going to focus on today is that attitude which helps us gain entrance into the kingdom of God. And there's a lot of confusion about that. Not long ago, I talked to a woman, and um, 
about uh, what she thought it was that uh, would allow her to get into heaven. She said, well, I've tried to live a good life. I've done the best I can. I've tried to help other people. And then I pointed her to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not by works, so that no one can boast. And I said, and I said in a very nice way, I said, this passage tells us that we are not saved by what we do, but, what, but by what Christ did. And I made it very clear to her, and it was obvious it was clear to her because her response to me was this. Well, I don't think a person can just simply believe and have eternal life. I think a person's got to work for it and, and do certain things and do good works. And that is pretty typical of what many people believe. In fact, it's, it's incredible to me, and isn't it to you, that someone, after looking at the clear words of Scripture, which say we're saved by faith through grace, which is a free gift, not of our own works, isn't it incredible to you that people can still say, no, I've got to do something, when the Bible clearly says, not by works. The Bible also teaches that works are very important. They're important after our salvation, but not before. And yet that is a mistake people have made throughout the ages. In fact, if there is one error that keeps people out of heaven, if there is one thing that keeps people from obtaining eternal life, it has to be this. It is the attitude of, I must do something. It is a kind of pride and self-righteousness that says, I can be good enough on my own. And that is exactly what Jesus is going to teach on today. But he's going to do it by means of two stories. The story about a child, weak and helpless, and the story about a young man, rich and powerful. So let's look at verse 13. Our first story tells us that some young children were brought to Jesus, obviously by their parents, that he might touch them, bless them. And the disciples, it says, rebuke those who brought them. Now note the disciples' attitude in this. It was something like, well, children, don't bother the master with children. They're unimportant. They're not important enough. Now, in that society, you remember I said recently, children were looked down upon as unimportant. Adults were idealized. Maturity and strength, weakness was scorned. And so the disciples say, look, Jesus, this guy, he's got more to do than deal with young children. And the word indicates young children. And the fact that Jesus could pick them up as well. So the, disciple, the disciples' attitude had a lot to be desired. They were preoccupied with prestige, with power, with stature. And when our preoccupation is with these things, we will keep ourselves from the kingdom of God and keep others from the kingdom of God. It's no wonder 
that probably, I think I've heard 80% of those who trust Christ as their Savior do so before age 18. And yet the disciples would prohibit children to come. In verse 38 of chapter 9, I'm sorry, in verse 42 of chapter 9, Jesus talked about the severity of hindering anyone from believing in him. It's better to take a millstone and tie it around your neck than to prevent anyone, one of the little, these little ones, he said, those who are weak and undeveloped in their faith. It's better to tie a millstone, throw yourself into the ocean, and sink to the bottom. And get eaten by worms and fish and sharks and seaweed and covered with barnacle than to prevent a young child from coming to Christ. You know, there's a lot of people who prevent children from coming to Christ today. A lot of it's just through sheer neglect and indifference and apathy and irresponsibility of the parents. Sad to say. But children grow up as parents. The children follow the parents' lead. And they will do what you train them to do. And if you do not do things to bring them to Christ, they will follow your lead. I'll never forget, I believe I've told this story before, but I'll never forget the time we were having outdoor clubs for children. And we were going and knocking on doors and telling people about the clubs. And I knocked on one door and a little, well, actually, he was playing out in the front yard. I remember right. I came to the gate and I asked this little boy and his little sister with him. He was eight and she was 11. I said, you want to come to a Bible club? We're going to sing songs, memorize Bible verses, and tell Bible stories. And they said, oh, great. And they jumped up and they ran to their mother who was now at the front door. And they said, mommy, mommy, can we go to this Bible club? And then the little boy said to his mama, mama, what's a Bible? Eight years old and didn't know what a Bible is. That mother is guilty of hindering a little one from coming to Jesus Christ. And then you say, well, why is there such a change of subject? Jesus has been talking about marriage and divorce, and all of a sudden he talks about bringing little children to Christ. Did Mark just take a bunch of stories and throw them together haphazardly? I don't believe so. Do you think there's any connection between marriage, divorce, and bringing children to Jesus Christ? What do you think happens when a family is split apart? The umbrella of protection that God has put over that family, the influences, the negative examples, the crippling guilt, the hatred, will that bring a child to Christ? And so it fits right in with what he's been saying. But Jesus doesn't like this attitude that the small and the insignificant are unimportant. And so look what it says in verse 14. It says he was greatly displeased. In fact, Ken's version said he was indignant. Very few times do we read about Christ's anger in the Bible. When we do read it, it is usually against unbelievers. This is one of the few times he is directing his anger against believers. And he says... It says, Mark says, he was greatly displeased. He was very angry at the disciples, the seriousness of what they had done. And he says to them, let the little children come to me. 
And do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. For of such is the kingdom of God. What did Jesus mean when he said that? He said that the kingdom of God is populated with people characterized by what is essentially a child's attitude. What is the essence of childhood? What is it that makes a child such an example of a citizen of the kingdom of God? Here's what it is. Humility. Total trust. Dependence. Lack of pretension. A willingness to trust father and mother completely. And take their word and believe them and follow. Children haven't learned to be arrogant and proud and puffed up. They can make silly mistakes, social mistakes, put their dress on backwards, their pants inside out. They don't care. No pretense, no pride. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says in verse 15, he states it as a requirement. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Now he is saying that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must receive the kingdom of God as a little child. How? That simply means to receive it humbly. In a trusting way. Not to bargain for it. Not to work for it. Just receive it. Children have no trouble receiving things, you find out, as a parent. They love to receive things. Gifts are easily appropriated. But adults, you want to give them a gift? What strings are attached? What do I have to do to return this favor? How can I make this up to them? You see, we can't take. It takes a certain grace to receive. When I first became a Christian and was going to Bible college, of course, I was on a very tight budget and um, had always fended for myself, had never taken a handout, and um, the pastor arranged for someone to help me financially in Bible college. And I had a very hard time accepting that financial gift. It cut against my pride. And that's something I had to work with for a long time, to be able to receive a financial gift from someone else. Some of you have had to struggle with that in your own lives when you were down a certain situation. We adults have a lot of pride, and we cannot receive things like children. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child by no means will by no means enter it. Just take it. As a free gift is what Jesus is talking about. And he took them in his arms, put his hands on them, and he blessed them. Oh, what a privilege and wonder it is and to lead a child to Christ. And to see them trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior without question, without hesitation, what examples of faith they are. Now there's a different story that Mark adds. Different because it involves a different cast, a different character, 
but the same because Jesus is now going to illustrate how it is adults cannot receive the kingdom of God as children. And this is what we see in the story of the rich young ruler. Now it says in verse 17, as he was going out on the road, one came running. Now notice the description of this man. He came running. He knelt before him, and he asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? We've not been told much about the man, but what we have been told, I think, shows us a lot. First it says he came running. This man was earnest. He wasn't waiting to trap Jesus as the Pharisees had done. He wasn't following him, uh, seeking for gain as many of his followers were. He came running after him. He really wanted to ask him something. I believe he was earnest and sincere. And then he knelt before him to demonstrate his earnestness and sincerity. How many Pharisees had knelt before Christ when asking him a question? And then he addresses him with all sincere respect, good teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? A sign of respect. Good teacher. I think he meant well by it. Luke adds something interesting to the story by telling us that the man was a rich, was a ruler. And then if you look down at verse 22, you see that he had great possession. What do we find out about the young man? Let's profile him. He is rich. He is powerful. He is young. He must have popularity. He must have prestige. As a ruler, he could even be a member of the Sanhedrin, except that if, it, if he's too young for that, which would be age 40, he must, might have been under 40, depending on what the word young means. But he was an up-and-coming young fellow. All the wealth he needed. But more than that, this young man, had an interest in spiritual things. A genuine and sincere interest in spiritual things. He was a commendable person, and by our standards, we would say he was a good man. In fact, he had a form of righteousness, an outward form of righteousness, that would have made him commendable in the eyes of all who knew him. We see that because of verse 18 through 20. Because even though the man was sincere and righteous in his own eyes, he lacked the assurance of eternal life. You know there are a lot of good people who go to church on Sunday, who sit week after week and listen to sermons, who watch the Bible teachers on television and listen to them on radio, and they are not sure they are going to heaven. Such is the rich young ruler. And so Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. What's Jesus doing here? He's going to educate the man in what goodness is. I'm sure that when the young man said, good teacher, he meant well and meant what he said. But what he did not realize is that there is a an absolute standard of goodness. And the man was applying it from his human point of view, applying it to Jesus as he would have to himself. 
And Jesus says, good, you call me good, but there's only one who's good, and that is God. And Jesus was saying a couple things here. First, either I'm not good, or if I'm good, I am God. And second, if you're not God, then you're not good. Now that's quite a startling revelation for someone who has grown up on the easy side of life, who has learned to fit in and outwardly do all the right things, say that you are not good. But Jesus is questioning his standard of evaluation. You know why we call one another good? It's because we use human standards for measuring. Like the little boy who ran into the room and said, Mommy, Mommy, guess what? I'm eight feet tall. He said, Oh, really? He said, Yeah. And when she checked, she found out the boy was using a, a six-inch ruler. And that's what we do. We use our own standards, and we come out looking pretty fine. In fact, I heard an interesting story about a young immigrant who became very successful as an author in our country and made a fortune writing several books and a play that was produced on Broadway. With his newfound wealth, he went out and bought a yacht. And he was very proud of all the things that he had attained and the money he had accumulated. Once, one day, he was on board with his mother as a guest. And he excused himself, went below deck, and shortly he returned in the attire of an officer's uniform. He had the hat, the coat, the trousers, the gold braid, and all the other trimmings of a captain's uniform. And he paraded before his mother. And uh, he said to her, See, Mama, I'm a captain. And she looked up at, up at him and said, Izzy, his name, Izzy, by me you was a captain, and by you you was a captain, but by captains you is no captain. A person can dress themselves up with good works and say, I'm good. But when we come before a holy and a perfect and an unchanging and unbending God, we have to echo the words of the scriptures, Old and New Testament, that says, there is none good, no, not one. And so Jesus was opening the man's eyes. And to open them further, he uses the law. He uses the law lawfully, as Timothy says. For the law was given to show us that we are not good. Now, Jesus uses the law exactly the opposite of the way many people, though in those days and in these days, use the law. How many times have you heard someone say, well, I keep the Ten Commandments? Or you say, do you think you're going to heaven? Well, yeah, I try to keep the Ten Commandments, so I've pretty much kept the Ten Commandments. I mess up now and then. As if the law were a ladder to get us to heaven. The Bible says the law was not given as a way to get to heaven. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 that the law was given to lead us to Christ. What does that mean? It means that the law was given to show us that we are not good. I often compare the law 
to an x-ray machine. When you stand before an x-ray machine, it does not cure you, but it shows you the problem and leads you to your remedy. So Jesus is now going to stand the man before the x-ray of the law. And this is what he says in verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. He uses all the commandments that have to do with interpersonal relationships because the commandments that have to do with our relationship to God can't be measured too easily, can they? But we can measure these that have to do with our conduct towards other men. But the amazing thing is the man's answer in verse 20. He said, answered and said to him, Teacher, all these I have observed from my youth. Was the man being sarcastic? Was he being deceptive? I don't believe so. I believe that the man had been trained under the Jewish system, had lived an outwardly righteous life, and basically by the standards of the day, he had kept those commandments. He had not slept with another another's mate. He had not murdered anyone and shed blood. He had not stolen anything or testified against anyone in a false way. But the thing that he lacked was God's perspective. And that is what Jesus tried to give in the, in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, look, you just look at a woman to lust, you're guilty of committing adultery. If you just hate someone in your mind, you're guilty of murder. Jesus took the broad requirements of the, the Pharisees and tightened them down to more perfectly describe and define the holy character of God. But it, went all, it all went over this young man's head. Teacher, I've observed these from my youth, he said. Since the age of about 12 years old, this Jewish young man had been held responsible for obeying the law. We in many denominations in the Protestant church do the, and the Catholics do the same thing. At the age of 12 or 13, they confirm you in the church. You are now a responsible member of the church, and you memorize things like the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed and things, and you're responsible to keep them. In the Jew, Jewish religion in those days, they did much the same thing. When you reached the age of 12 as a young man, young boy, you were held responsible for keeping the law. From my youth, he says, I have done that. And he had, a, and he had the perception that he was really all right by the standards of the day. But then in verses, the verses that follow, Jesus exposes what the man truly lacked. And Jesus looked at him, it says in verse 21, and loved him. Let's pause right there. Jesus loved him. The man was self-righteous. He was wrong. He had perverted the understanding of the law. But Jesus loved him. Aren't we fortunate that our own self-righteousness and pride does not repel a holy God? So Jesus looked at him with love and he said to him, one thing you lack. What is the one thing that he lacked? 
That is the question. The man wants to know how to get into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, in spite of all your good works, you lack one thing. And that is the same thing in the lives of so many today who go to church, who sit in church, who call themselves Christians, believe they're Christian, but lack one thing. So we need to find out what that is today. Jesus is going to expose it. I think it would probably be more helpful if I told you what that one thing is right at the start. And then we'll develop it. Jesus never says what the one thing is explicitly, but he proves what the one thing is. What is it that is required? If I were to ask any of you, what is it that is required to get into heaven? What would you say? What does the Bible say you must do to get into heaven? You must believe. You must have faith. That is the only thing required to have eternal life. The motto of the Reformation was sola fide, faith alone. One thing, faith, gets us eternal life. But Jesus never comes out and says that. This is how he exposes and reveals that to the young man. So we're going to talk, first of all, about what the man lacked. And we'll see that he lacked saving faith. You see that he lacked that sense of helplessness and smallness as a child. Saving faith realizes that man is helpless. The man still felt that he could work his way into heaven. But notice how far his works got him. There's no security in working our way to heaven. Those who think they can earn heaven can have absolutely no security that heaven is theirs in this life. Why? Because you have to ask the question, how much do I have to work? How much is good enough? So every religion that teaches salvation on the basis of works, every religion that teaches that can offer no security. And this man did not realize his helplessness. Saving faith, however, must exclude self-righteousness. Christ has said that you must receive the kingdom as a child. And the man, on the other hand, wanted to know what he could do. You see the great contrast in the two stories? Jesus says to the children, uh, of the children that you've got to be like them and just receive. And then along comes a man and says, Lord, what do I have to do? Isn't that so adult-like? Isn't that so typical of us? Okay, heaven, I'm ready. What do I have to do to get there? I can handle it. Exactly what Jesus has been teaching against. You must receive the kingdom of heaven. That excludes boasting. We must come before Jesus as a child. Helpless, nothing to boast about. Just with a thank you. And that's all. But saving faith has another aspect to it. Not only does it realize 
our helplessness. Saving faith believes God's promise. Saving faith simply takes God at his word. In verse 21, Jesus tells the man, Go your way and sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. I think you know, there's a couple of things we need to understand here. First of all, was Jesus saying to the young man that in order to get into heaven, you've got to sell everything? I don't think he was saying that. Although there are many who teach that today. If Jesus was saying we must sell everything and give it to the poor to get to heaven, how many of us would be in heaven? Not me. Jesus wasn't giving a general requirement for salvation. He was giving a specific test to show this man his heart, to reveal to this man his real affiliation and loyalty. And I think what Jesus was really saying to the man was this, okay, you think you've already deserved heaven by your good work. Well, then come and follow me as a disciple and sell everything and give it to the poor. Because discipleship's a life of self-denial, just as salvation means that you have to deny your own righteousness, your own self. And it says in verse 22, when he saw this, he was sad and he went away grieved, for he had great possessions. The man was not willing to believe Jesus when Jesus promised him treasure for giving up his possession. How could he believe Jesus? that in the same way the kingdom of God is obtained through a simple promise. The man had a lack of faith. And his lack of faith is demonstrated by his refusal to believe the word of God. If this was a rich man, if really he, indeed he was concerned about wealth, then certainly to give up his wealth to gain more wealth would have been a good business move, wouldn't it? But the man didn't believe and so he couldn't believe in Jesus as Savior if he can't take Christ at his word. So saving faith simply believes in God's promise. And this man didn't have that kind of simple trust as a child. And then a third aspect of saving faith is demonstrated. Saving faith trusts in Christ alone. In verse 22, it said he was sad at this word and went away grieved, for he had great possession. What was the man trusting in? Was he trusting in Christ? No, he was trusting in riches. In fact, we see that that is the issue down in verse 24. When Jesus, in explaining all that had transpired, said, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some Bibles don't say trust in riches, but there are many manuscripts that read that way and it seems to be a good reading. How hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. The man went away sad because he was unwilling to place his trust in Christ alone as opposed to what he could do through his wealth. You know, riches give us a sense of security, though it be a false security. And those who are wealthy often have much confidence in this age, in this world. And you would be too if you had a lot of wealth. 
If you were the wealthiest person in the neighborhood, you would feel good, you'd feel confident. But those who are extremely wealthy get the feeling that there's nothing they can't do. They're very self-sufficient and independent. And that kind of attitude is not the attitude that, that gain in, gains entrance into the kingdom of God. And God will not share allegiance and loyalty with anyone or anything. There must be single faith in Christ as Savior. And if there's anything that hinders one from believing in Christ as Savior or continuing in belief, it is to be cut off. Isn't that what we talked about two weeks ago when he said, if your hand makes you sin, cut it off. If your foot makes you sin, cut it off. If your eye makes you sin, pluck it out. If your riches keep you from the kingdom of heaven, get rid of them. And by telling the man to do that, he suddenly exposes what the man's problem was. The man was more trusting in his riches than he was in Christ and his word. He served wealth. He loved wealth. But no man can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or love the one and hate the other. People come to Christ and to heaven and the kingdom of God only on God's terms, not our own. There was a man on a sinking ship. Right before the ship went down, he, he stuffed his pockets with gold bullion. Had to put his life vest on, jumped overboard, and sunk to the bottom. That's what this man wanted to do. He wanted to trust in his riches to save him. And not in Christ. And he had a false security. Why did Jesus single out riches? Because that was what the man was trusting in. For other people, it would have been different things, I believe. For other people, he might have asked them, uh, what kind of relationship is keeping you from coming to Christ? What kind of activity or what kind of sin is it that you worship more than you worship me? And so this shows us that faith includes the element of repentance and turning from whatever it is that keeps us from Christ. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a good friend when I first became a Christian. I explained the gospel to him and we had good discussion. And I made it very clear to him, so clear, that when we were finished talking, he said to me, you mean all I need to do is believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior and I'm saved and have eternal life? And I said, yes. And he said, but when I become a Christian, do you mean I have to stop drinking and start running around with women and doing this and that, which all he was involved in? And I said, well, you don't have to do that to be a Christian, but I want you to know ahead of time that if you become a Christian, God's going to ask you uh, to stop doing that. And he said, well, I can't give that stuff up. So to this day, he's not a Christian. In fact, I think he's in jail. What is the one thing the man lacked? Saving faith. Saving faith says that we are helpless before God and we offer nothing in our salvation. Saving faith simply believes in God's word and takes him at his word. And saving faith believes in Christ alone. You can't be saved by trusting a little bit in Christ and a lot in something else or a lot in Christ and a little bit in something else. You're either in Christ or you're out of Christ. You're either trusting in Christ or you're trusting in something else.
That raises the question, why is faith the only thing that God accepts from us? Why can't God accept my good works? Why can't I live a spotless life and keep the Ten Commandments and go to heaven? But I think that's the issue in verses 23 through 27 where Jesus describes or explains what has happened. Let's read those verses. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is, excuse me, how hard it is for those who are richest to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. See, the Jews had the concept that a rich person was enjoying the blessing of God. We have that today, don't we? We get in financial trouble, we say, Oh, God's cursing me. We get a gift in the mail, we're doing well, we get a promotion, oh God is blessing me. You ever think that your financial blessing may be a real curse? But the Jews in those days had the concept that a rich man was a man blessed of God. They had the example of Abraham and Job to look at. And the disciples were astonished at his word, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. You see, the issue is trusting in riches. And then he says something amazing in verse 25, startling. It is easier for a camel. Camel was the largest animal in Palestine. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The word is very, especially in Luke's gospel, apparent, it means a surgeon's needle. The smallest opening known to man. Now, there are some who say that the eye of a needle is a small gate in the wall of Jerusalem through which the anim animals would have to crawl after taking their loads off. There's absolutely nothing to support that. Jesus was, Jesus was speaking about a literal needle, a smallest opening known to man. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? You see what Jesus is saying? It's not hard to get into heaven. He's saying it's impossible to get into heaven. Hey, i got good news for you. It's impossible to get into heaven. Isn't that something? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible. But not with God, for with God all things are possible. It is impossible for man left alone to get into heaven. Why is it so necessary that God only accept our faith and not our works? Because man is a sinner and in rebellion against God. And any work done in that state is unacceptable because it is done in a state of rebellion. The only thing that comes to the only thing that God accepts is the attitude that I am no good and you are all good. And I can do nothing because Christ has done everything. And that is an attitude of humility and helplessness. An attitude without pretension and without pride. And that is why God alone accepts, accepts faith alone. Because anything else leaves ground for boasting. And Jesus did not say it's hard to get into heaven. He said it's impossible to get into heaven. Save for the grace of God. With God, all things are possible. God
God alone can bridge the gap between life and death, heaven and hell, sin and forgiveness. God alone can do it. Christ on the cross. Nothing we can do. It is impossible to work your way to heaven. Christ alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. And that's why we can only come to God in faith. But Jesus had mentioned reward. And this sparked some interest in Peter. And uh, in fact, I think it shook Peter a little bit. And uh, Peter saw these strong words of the young man, and the young man walked away, couldn't forsake his wealth. And so Peter, it says, speaks up in verse 28 and says to him, See, we have left all and followed you. And I think what he's doing is he's groping for a little assurance here. Lord, we have left everything, and we're following you. now. We're going to get into heaven, aren't we? And uh, I mean, this is all worthwhile, isn't it? And Jesus answered him with some words that should be cherished by us today. And he says to him in verse 29, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is saying, there is no one who has sacrificed anything for me who will not be repaid in this life and the next life. But he says it in such a way that's amazing. He says, not only will you be rewarded in this life, but it will be a hundredfold. You won't be rewarded one for one. You'll be rewarded a hundred to one. Why such an amazing ratio? Because God's grace is amazing. And again, God is reserving the glory for himself. We could get to heaven and say, oh, I gave up so much for God. But we can't when we see that he gave us a hundred times more in return. I think the principle here is simple. That which is sacrificed to Jesus Christ and his gospel is valued more greatly afterwards. Think about that. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.